across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have reached the end of yet another extraordinary week, ladies and gentlemen, in the Independent Republic and outside of it. So let us pause and take stock of exactly where we are. In Scotland, huge swathes of the most populous areas are going into tighter lockdown restrictions as of today. And you can't even travel across Adrian's Wall after 6pm if you're coming from England. In Northern Ireland, they've so convinced the lockdown is a good idea, they've extended it for another two weeks. That's how much they like it. I've completely missed what's going on in Wales, so if anybody can tell me, please do let me know. Uh, Merthyr Tidville did, of course, get uh, the highest infection rate in Britain while they were in lockdown. And in England, Boris Johnson and his ministers are teasing us with the possibility of having a few days of freedom for Christmas. Marvellous, isn't it? Meanwhile, there's an entirely different conversation being had in other sectors of the medical community outside of SAGE about immunity, about T-cells, about measuring rates of fatality and about the accuracy of all the testing that we are basing all of these restrictions on. We'll be talking to diagnostic pathologist Dr. Claire Craig. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on just to prove 2020 has indeed well and truly lost the block. I've now been blocked by the Pogues on Twitter. That's after I spent most of yesterday's show declaring how ludicrous it was for Radio 1 to ban Fairy Tale of New York. Apparently, they're now against people who think the original lyrics are sacrosanct. Maybe they should rename themselves the Wokes or possibly the Planks. We'll be asking Emily Carver about why this year has been so bizarre when it comes to people being politically correct. 0344 499 1000. We'll be bringing you the latest on the Pretty Patel bullying claims, news on your forgotten pensions, a public sector pay freeze, and of course, Olivia Utley with her take on the week. And if you've been trying to get hold of a PS5 for one of your kids, you'll know that that's one of the stories we might be touching upon as well. And because it's Friday, it's time for another sparkling edition of the Perrier Awards. An homage to my brilliance in broadcasting, where I don't make any mistakes at all, uh, honestly. And uh, that's with producer Marta Malagon. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest great radio station on the entire planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there are many questions and there are very few answers these days about an awful lot of what is going on. We are now into officially the third week of lockdown. Uh, we're told that on December the 2nd, more than likely, we will be coming out of that particular lockdown. But we may not know what we are going back into. I suspect it will be some kind of tiered scenario where some parts of the country get into tier two. Some go into tier one. Some will go into tier three. We're going to speak now to Dr. Claire Craig, consultant pathologist, who I've never had on the show before, uh, but who I'm very pleased. To, to say that we are getting her on because she calls herself a sceptic uh, but also optimistic, which is entirely, I think, where, where I am. Uh, Dr. Claire, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I've been looking at some of the things uh, that you've been tweeting out about uh, where we are and, and what kind of conclusions we can draw. I mean, it looks as though you've looked at fatality rates, for example, being very, very different in different parts of the country. There's questions about T-cells. There's questions about um, immunity. There's questions about the testing accuracy. I mean, the worrying thing for me, um, Claire, is that all of these lockdown restrictions and, and, and policies being made by government are being made based on all of this uh, data, which, which, which is obviously in question. Um, I've certainly come to question it in depth. And the thing is that when you do question it, you can see from lots of different angles that it doesn't add up. So when you look superficially, it does look like we are in an epidemic. You know, we, there, are, there were rises in cases in the autumn, there were rises in deaths subsequently. 
But when you start to look on a regional basis and when you start to look at just simple things like percentages or how they change over time, it doesn't make sense. So what we've had since September is that the number of deaths started to rise totally out of proportion to the number of hospital admissions and ICU admissions. So the death seemed to be doing its own thing. It wasn't related to the others in a way it should be if it's a disease. Right. And what we've just seen recently is that the number of cases have, has just fallen a bit, which, you know, is great. And actually the number of deaths in hospital seems to have peaked and fallen. It seemed to peak on the 9th of November. So that's early enough now that we can say it's not just a data lag. But in the meantime, the hospital admissions and the ICU admissions are still on the way up. And when these things start not to be related to each other in a way that a disease would predict, so a disease would have the case become a hospital admission, become an ICU admission, become a death. And then at the end, as things tail off, the cases should drop first and then the admissions and then the deaths. Right. But doing it in the right order because it's not measuring a disease anymore. No. And that is the difficulty, because for those of us who are not, you know, medically qualified, we're not statisticians, we understand data up to a point, um, but we don't really know precisely what is being compared to what, as you say. It makes for a very confusing picture. And I think the biggest problem this government now has is that people are not buying it anymore. And a lot of people uh, are, are less than likely to believe what the sage scientists are coming out with. Um, yeah, I do think that's a problem they've had, and I think it's a problem that they've tried to shut down. And I think what, one of the reasons we're in this situation is that part of the pandemic planning is about shutting down dissenting voices. And I think that some of the people in power, as part of that thought process, haven't been listening. They haven't been listening to important things that people like me have been t- trying to tell them that they're getting wrong. Mm. So very blinkered and focused on what they're trying to do which is save the world from a deadly virus but to the exclusion of some things which are just sensible they're complicated but they're sensible and they need to start listening yeah and why do you think it is that they're so recalcitrant and they're so kind of unwilling to move or to change or to kind of um, even adapt to the moving picture because it seems to me that you know they keep telling us that we're following the science and you know you have to believe the data and all that when clearly you know that's not how we go through life you know if the government comes up with a policy on anything we're entitled to question it as journalists and you're entitled to question it as as professionals in a particular arena and it seems bizarre to me that we've reached this point where you're kind of either with them or against them yes it is a bit bizarre and i think they've um I think they're worried. I think they're scared, actually. I think what we've seen throughout this pandemic is a lot of reaction that's to do with fear. And I think they're scared because they think they're responsible for a population that they think are still susceptible to a deadly virus. Mm. And they're looking at the world through that lens. Um, And that's not the right lens to be looking at it through. But it also means that the way they respond to things that, that counter that narrative... It's defensive because they're scared because they've got this responsibility. That's right. And, I mean, it has worked on quite a large portion of the population as well because we all see and know people and talk to people um, who are a bit nervous about going outside, who worry that, you know, if they do go on public transport, they might catch it, that if they do in any way kind of walk anywhere out in the open air without a mask on, that they're in some kind of grave danger. I know of people whose children are nervous about going outside, don't really want to go to school. So, I mean, it's had a terrible effect on people's psyches, this whole kind of uh, campaign of the government's. 
Um, it, it really has. And, and I mean, the thing is that COVID was a real um, new-ish virus that came in spring and absolutely killed people. And it killed middle-aged people as well as the elderly and vulnerable. And, and it, you know, it was something worth being scared about at that time. Um, but what we're, what we're seeing now isn't that. And what the, you know, the way the fear has continued to be pushed is really out of proportion to what, what's happened since. Mm. You know, we have a pandemic and it went through the population and people did die, but it has passed and people have immunity and, and it's a bit ridiculous to still be so scared. And I think they just haven't really understood the evidence about immunity. That yeah. We have immunity. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what exactly have you found about the situation regarding immunity? Um, so to, I think the real issue is around the government testing for antibodies. So from May, um, the government did random testing of the population to see who had antibodies to COVID. But when you design a test, you have to decide who you want to test positive and who you want to test negative. And for the positive group, all the manufacturers picked blood samples from patients who'd been in hospital with COVID. And for the negative group, they picked blood samples from donor blood from before COVID arrived. So by definition, those donor blood samples couldn't be patients who had COVID because COVID hadn't arrived yet. Mm. But by definition, anybody that was immune to COVID before it arrived, because there were parts of COVID that just looked like the common cold, would also test negative. So what they have is a really good test to tell you who had COVID, but it is not a test that tells you who is immune. But actually, Public Health England have done other experiments, which are really good, but also use antibodies, but use antibodies to the whole virus. And those studies show that before COVID arrived, more than half of us were immune. So if you add those two together, and actually the other studies, the T-cell studies show more than half of us were immune, and even the sort of household transmission studies show that um, if you have people that had it and look at how many people they managed to give it to that they lived with, it was maximum a half. So the other half were immune. So from whatever angle you look at it, half of us were immune. You add on the 7% that had it, you're at herd immunity. Right. And why would you perhaps be immune from something that you didn't actually know was there before? So um, the thing with coronaviruses is that they're a family of viruses. So parts of the proteins on coronavirus, we will have seen, well, a lot of us may have seen before. There's some parts that are unique that none of us have seen before, which is what that antibody is to that we've been testing with. Um, But also our immune systems are really clever. So they, even if you've never seen something before, the way the antibodies work is that they have, we just create a huge diverse range and then pick the ones that work for us. And so you always get a little bit of overlap mm. and that, that's how we survive. Well, this is the thing. I mean, uh, when I see uh, some scientists uh, quite quite honestly misleading the public, um, there was one the other day who was talking about, um, you know, jumbo jets full of people falling out of the sky. This is what we're dealing with, over 500 people dying every single day. What they don't mention uh, is that there's another 1,000 people who are dying every day of something completely different, nothing to do with COVID. So there is this kind of, you know, fear-mongering that goes on in the same way that, you know, there's no evidence, it seems to me, for anyone to say if you have uh, a one day of freedom for Christmas that you need to then spend five days in isolation in order to make up for it. It doesn't make any logical sense at all. No, I, mean, I agree, it doesn't. And the, the thing about the, the deaths, the death figures are obviously a great way of inducing fear. 
But when you look when you look at it on a regional basis, we do seem to have some excess deaths in the northwest and in parts of Yorkshire, just in pockets, not mm. across the region. Um, and I think there are some places, particularly Hull, that didn't have so much COVID in the spring and and have had a bit in October, but thankfully it's coming down. So there are some places that had little outbreaks, but they're not epidemic. They haven't spread across the whole region because there is immunity. Mm. But places like the East of England, East Midlands and West Midlands, where for every week the increase in COVID deaths is mirrored exactly by a decrease in excess non-COVID deaths. And you see that when you've just misdiagnosed. If you start labeling people who are dying of other things with COVID, then you're not labeling them with what they would have been labeled with. And you see that coming out in the data. Yeah. And so from your point of view, um, Dr. Clare, can you say with some relative degree of, of, um, of assurity that that there will not be an overwhelming of the NHS between now and, say, January? Yes. And and what's more, we the predictions that we had were that we would already have full Nightingale hospitals at this point. Yeah. It hasn't happened. It's not really... We are not in an epidemic. Right. And also, it would appear, and I think you mentioned this earlier, that the peak of this latest wave would appear to have been before the lockdown happened anyway. So, you know, you would expect to see a sort of tailing off of infections. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, I don't think lockdown has had any impact this time. I think there are interventions that can slow viral spread. I think washing hands and things are very important and staying away from vulnerable people, you know, when there's a, a virus around. And that applies every year. That's not just a COVID thing. Um, and slowing spread is important in an epidemic because you don't want, the, when you reach the point where we've got immunity of the population, you want to reach that point while there are as few people as possible who've just caught it. Because if everybody's caught it already, then you don't benefit from having reached that point and you have right. some guy that wasn't above one. Right. So, so I think some of the things we did in spring did slow it a bit, but then we've ended up with these pockets that are sort of catching up now. So how much difference it made in the long term, I don't know. And certainly there's nothing to suggest that whatever is happening now is anywhere near uh, as bad as what happened in April uh, and May in terms of the numbers, in terms of the graphs, in terms of everything that we saw happening from March to sort of the end of May. You know, we haven't got anywhere near those those kinds of numbers. So how does that explain what they're doing in Northern Ireland, where they've decided that apparently the lockdown needs to be extended yet again for another two weeks? I mean, what are they going to achieve? I'm not sure what the thinking is in Northern Ireland, but I do know that someone just shared with me that the number of deaths at home has gone up 12-fold. And when people are dying at home, you know, sometimes it's people who would have gone to hospital and died there mm. dying at home. Sometimes that could be a choice from the patient's point of view. Right. We also know that accident emergency attendances are down and that when you're making ambulance staff self-isolate, then your ambulance times increase. And we had an epidemic of heart attacks in the spring because of those kinds of effects. And I worry that that's what Northern Ireland is seeing again now. And, you know, some of the deaths that we are seeing are because of what we're doing as a society. And we can't turn our back on that. You know, there are 100 deaths a day at home more than normal. And that's been going on right through the summer and through the autumn. Mm. There's a lot of people dying at home when they wouldn't have been before. And they can't all be because they wanted to. Yeah. So if you were able to, Dr. Clare, give a message to Boris Johnson and to Chris Whitty, who seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth, uh, and all the other sage um, advisors in Downing Street, what would you say to them? I would say that scientists always question whether they're wrong. 
all the time we're asking could this be wrong could this be wrong we have to start doing that Thank you very much indeed. That's a great message to give them to them on this Friday uh, when we are now about to be going into the third week of a lockdown, uh, which as far as Dr. Claire Craig is concerned and as far as many other people are concerned, on very sensible sides of the medical community, it's not really making any difference. And as Dr. Claire said, you must question everything that you do. You must wonder whether it's wrong. You must make sure that what you're doing is the right thing. She doesn't understand why uh, Northern Ireland has extended its lockdown. I don't understand that either. Many of you out there need to be able to get to work, to do your work, to make the money, to pay the taxes, which keeps everything going in this country. And that is where we are at the end of another weird week. We need to have some kind of a change of strategy, surely. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is Friday, of course, which means only one thing. The Perrier Awards will be popping up in the last hour of the show. We'll be doing an awful lot uh, more about the Pogues as well, because, of course, uh, Fairy Tale in New York now uh, cannot be played on Radio 1, uh, not in its original form anyway. Otherwise, uh, if they do, people might get offended. Uh, but apparently the Pogues got so offended by me saying that people would get uh, offended, and that was ridiculous, uh, that they blocked me. So uh, we've now gone full circle in the old world of political correctness. Quite bizarre, isn't it? Uh, there's always the opportunity, of course, to suggest that the Pogues' official um, Twitter account is not actually run by anybody in the Pogues because they're all too busy lying around suffering from hangovers from hell. Who knows? I couldn't possibly comment. But let's talk to Henry Hill because one of the things we don't, of course, uh, um, allow on this show on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham is any form of bullying of any kind. That's just not allowed. Uh, but uh, we've had all manner of people this morning rolled out to defend Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, because she supposedly, according to to a secret report which has not yet been seen by anyone, uh, broken ministerial codes. Let's talk to Henry Hill, Assistant Editor at Conservative Home. Henry, very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This is a bit of a distraction from COVID, isn't it? Just when you thought everything had sort of gone away uh, as far as the Home Office uh, uh, is concerned. Um, What are you making of it all? Patel guilty of bullying staff, according to the front page of The Times. Well, I mean, it's really unfortunate that the government has chosen not to publish this report yet. It's, it's not under any compulsion to, but it means that now that it's been leaked, we're now stuck speculating without the full, without the, with the advantage of the full facts. So right. obviously, nobody wants to prejudge what that actually says. As far as I can tell, the, the, the report seems to have come down against both parties, really. It says, yes, Priti Patel does appear to have breached the ministerial code. Um, in her conduct with regards to members of the civil service at the Home Office, which is obviously serious. Mm. But it also says that the, the civil servants themselves, nobody at the Home Office raised this with Patel herself. They went straight to the Home Office disciplinary procedures making bullying complaints. Right. And therefore, the, what the report says is that Priti Patel never had an opportunity to change her behaviour. She was never told about the impact it was having on other people. And I think, some, I think that's possibly the problem here, is that there's a difference between a, if you like, an inappropriate management style, which does have a negative contact on staff, and deliberate bullying. And the problem is that if Priti Patel was never told about what she was doing and never given an opportunity to change, how do we, we you know, it, it makes it much harder to tell whether or not it was deliberate misconduct yes. or, as the report says, accidental. Which, again, is how it would work in the private sector, because obviously we're talking this morning a little bit about uh, private sector and public sector, because there may well be a public sector pay freeze coming along. And there's an awful lot of comparisons that get made during this pandemic, whereby, for example, it seems to be people in the private sector bearing the brunt uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the lockdown 
down regulations and bearing the brunt of the sort of uh, loss of income and all of that. But also, I mean, interesting that the, the, the report is leaked because Sir Philip Rutman, the man that sort of started all this, who was paid a bucket load more money than Priti Patel ever was, um, and it was a sort of career civil servant, was accused of leaking in the first place, which was one of the reasons there was a row. Indeed, and although he's now, I think, I think he's now um, t- uh, suing the government for constructive dismissal over the way that he ended up living the civil service. Yeah, yeah I mean, and the, the leaking is unhelpful. And, you know, it's a sign of how divided the government is in some respects that this has man- that, that this has been leaked. Apparently, it's been sitting on the prime minister's desk for a couple of months. But you can understand, on the other hand, why, why um, not necessarily the big mandarins because they can they can clearly fend for themselves. But junior civil servants would be would be aggravated that this has been through a formal process and yet. The Prime Minister has apparently done nothing about it. And even if, if it's true that Boris Johnson is going to ask Priti Patel to make an apology and, and issue her a formal reprimand, not, not dismiss her, but, then why did it take a leak two months after the report came out for that to happen? That's, mm. a, legi- that's a legitimate question that needs to be asked of the Prime Minister. I mean, will this be laid firmly at the door of Dominic Cummings and the sort of outgoing, less kinder, gentler uh, administration? I mean, it might. I, you know, I'm not in a position to speculate as to whether this is actually Cummings' fault, but I certainly think that it is generally the case that when you've just booted out somebody, um, it makes sense to try and heap as much of the blame <laughs> on them as possible. We've all seen that happen before. It must, I must yeah, say, John Redwood put it. Government everywhere else. No, exactly. I mean, John Redwood put out an interesting tweet this morning. The issue at the Home Office should be: Why did some officials resist controlling our borders and tackling the scourge of people trafficking across the Channel? The Home Secretary has rightly been trying to enforce the law and to stop crime. And there's no doubt that in the background to this whole dispute, if you like, has been the kind of reluctance and the recalcitrance of the Home Office and of the civil servants in that Home Office to kind of what would appear to be carry out what the Home Secretary wants them to do. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that Dominic Cummings... This is one of the things that Dominic Cummings really did have a point on, is the fact that, you know, the civil service does genuinely, given that there's been quite a big... You know, since Blair, at least, there's been quite a strong policy consensus. And the civil service, elements of the civil service, are having real trouble changing course. Pretty Patel is not the only department where we've had this problem. The Prime Minister was reportedly absolutely furious when, to pick an example at random, the Northern Ireland office went and hatched a deal to get Stormont back on its feet, which completely undermined the Prime Minister's Brexit negotiating position. And Nobody in Downing Street or anyone else knew what that deal was going to say until the then Northern Ireland Secretary Julian Smith announced it. It was just completely done in this silo without reference to the rest of the government's agenda. So, yes, the the ministers are, in many respects, pushing uphill to try and get the civil service to to row in behind an agenda with which it disapproves. And I think the problem is that that agenda and that clash with the senior civil servants is being mixed up with the question of how of the treatment of junior staff. Mm. And that, sh- that, that needs to be disaggregated as quickly as possible. Yes, I think that's right. And once again, I suppose you'd have to come down on the side of um, confusion, wouldn't you, when it comes to talking about government communications and the way that Boris Johnson and, and his cabinet and Downing Street in general actually allow the spread of information because they're not controlling it very well, are they? No, they're not. I mean, I mean, I, I, the government's me- uh, message discipline is just remarkably terrible. I mean, if you think about the fact, as I was saying, you know, with the previous row that Boris Johnson had when he when he went off about devolution, we had three or four days of headlines about devolution when we should have been talking about the fact there's a vaccine coming. Mm. That's an amazing good news story. The government should have been shouting it from the rooftops, and instead we've had a series of rows about other things. The, the, it, given, and, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that people started getting, well, one of the many reasons that people started getting angry at Dominic Cummings is that one thing, the one thing the Vote Leave team was supposed to be really good at is messaging and campaigning. You know, whatever their shortcomings in terms of actual governance, that was supposed to be their strength. Right. And yet here we are with the government being 
you know, run from pillar to post in the, in the media. So, yeah. yeah, the government absolutely does need to get a grip on this really quickly. And as we enter the third week of lockdown, I mean, how do you see it all unfolding next week? Because clearly, you know, there is a thirst uh, among certain sections of the community uh, for the lockdown to be given um, some definitive end, right? Because at the moment, we're still being given sort of con- conflicting reports from various different ministers, you know, saying we hope that you'll be able to have Christmas. We're not really sure. We hope to be able to lift the lockdown on December the 2nd, but we're not really sure. I mean, they're going to have to give at least the retail businesses of this country, if not the hospitality businesses, some kind of signal that they can reopen because they need to stock up. They are. And the problem is that the government can't tell people what it's going to do until it knows what it's going to do. And all the signs are that it still doesn't know. The prime minister's top priority, by all indication, is making sure that people can see their families at Christmas. Basically, if necessary, carving out an exemption to the lockdown rules for Christmas. But... Because of the risk that that will, I say risk, almost certainty that that will increase the R rate and slow down the, you know, the, the, the control over COVID-19, mm. that means that if you're planning on releasing people over Christmas, you have to be stricter at other times. And that does suggest, unfortunately, that they're going to extend controls into December and then probably reintroduce them before the new year. So we only really get a few days around Christmas. Now, obviously, that's not what people want. It's certainly going to be extremely challenging for the retail sector. Mm. And it will be very difficult. It will be increasingly difficult for the government to refuse full economic support for businesses, given that it's just unveiled all this money for defence. Um, but I suspect, unfortunately, that what's going to happen is the government is going to end up extending lockdown yeah. in order to justify giving us Christmas off. Except that they still can't really show why they have to do that. I mean, we're hearing in Northern Ireland they're extending the lockdown for two more weeks because it doesn't work, which is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, the government long ago lost the public on the, on, on the justification for all of this, not necessarily because it, it's wrong, but just because it has so comprehensively failed to communicate the rationale. Yeah. You know, other con- you, you, and, and that is a serious problem, because what we're seeing is, and one of the reasons actually the government needs to be as strict as it is, is because obedience is dropping, right? I mean, you've, you, you know this, I know this. If you look out when we went into second lockdown, if you compare it to the first lockdown and you look at the number of cars on the road and everything else, it's night and day. Yeah. So people are already starting to take this less seriously. And if the government sent up a green light by saying, actually, we're going to ease back on lockdown, I think their worry is that it would just collapse altogether. So they need to keep amping up the controls just to offset diminishing public obedience. Which is a hell of a price to pay for those people whose businesses are getting completely ripped apart, isn't it? I mean, yes, it is. I mean, this, and that's why I think the government is is is, on, is obliged to continue to offer full support, especially if there's a vaccine. I think the one good, the one upside, is that now that there is clearly a vaccine on the horizon, hopefully by next spring, the government really has no excuse not to continue to offer business owners and the self-employed full economic support. The re- the rationale for cutting furlough and all the rest of it was that we couldn't afford it because we didn't know how long it would have to last Mm. now that we can see the end goal ideally then the rationale has to be let's stick with the original logic and keep the economy in suspension and so we can let it go at full steam in the spring Okay, Henry Hill, Conservative Home Assistant Editor. Thank you very much indeed. Priti Patel uh, apparently is in breach of ministerial code. Now, you may not know what that means. I may not know what that means. But what would appear to be the case is that there is a report which has not yet been released, which says that Priti Patel is a bit of a bully. Well, you know, in order to find out whether you can make a judgment on that, surely we need to see the report, don't we? And we need to ask who put the report together and we have to look at who's made the complaints. It's as simple as that. And only then can we really judge what it is that she did and whether what she did uh, was in any way uh, beyond the pale. It's almost impossible to know. This whole story from the beginning to the end 
has always been a case of he said, she said. It's always been a very highly paid civil servant leaking against to technically the woman who was his boss, Priti Patel, to say that she treated him in a terribly awful, ghastly way. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you can do it without bullying people. Sometimes you can be just a little bit unpleasant. But that doesn't mean that bullying is acceptable. And it doesn't mean that every time you have a go at somebody, it's bullying. It's as simple as that, really, isn't it? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, I must confess, even I was quite taken aback by the uh, development yesterday afternoon when I thought the Pogues uh, would have been quite happy about me defending them, uh, whether instead it turned out to be completely the reverse. Let's talk to Emily Carver, political commentator, uh, often a popular version of the Plank of the Week when she appears as the panellist there. Uh, In fact, she might be on it very soon again. Emily, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. I'm very well, but I'm cut to the quick, obviously, by having been blocked by the Pogues. I, mean, I didn't even know the Pogues had an official Twitter account. They don't actually have a blue tick, but I'm assuming it's run by somebody who's not actually a Pogue. It may be a Pogue fan that's running it. Um, but there I was trying to help them out, trying to sort of stand up for reason and fun and Christmas. And instead, I've been, uh, you know, cast off into the sidelines like Lawrence Fox, because I'm obviously far too right wing for them. I mean, it's quite amusing, isn't it? You couldn't really make it up. You really couldn't. I mean, they it really sums up want... sums up 2020, doesn't it? It does. They don't want you defending them. No. Even though 
you're defending them because I guess they're concerned that they'll be cancelled forever. So they've got to backtrack on anything offensive they've ever said in their entire lives, in their whole career. I mean, but yes, I'm sure probably some uh, millennial running the accounts. So. I know it's it's pretty it's pretty bizarre as well because it's the only song really that anybody knows that they ever wrote fairy tale in new york and the only reason it was successful uh, was because of kirsty mccall who actually was brought in by steve lillywhite a guy that i know quite well the producer of the sh- of, of the of the song and kirsty mccall's own mother has said that this whole thing is ridiculous so i wonder if they've taken against her as well they probably have you know these kind of debates don't uh, stop at family you know families are torn apart over this kind of free speech versus cancel culture debate um that's going on but i think these type of arguments over songs like this and lyrics, you know, they do come up time and time again. And uh, people like you and I are accused of sort of whipping up culture wars hysterics. But this isn't just a one off, is it? Um, it speaks to a wider problem. That's why people get so frustrated yeah. with kind of censorship. You know, we had the BBC pulling comedy shows such as Faulty Towers and uh, Little Britain yeah. from their archives. We had the BBC banning football commentators from using supposedly racist phrases like nitty gritty we all remember the attempts to uh, censor Land of Hope and Glory yeah. in Royal Britannia. Yeah, so I, made you, I seem to remember I made you sing it at the end of Plank of the Week one time, which did rather well, actually, but people didn't see the funny side of it. You know, they looked at us doing it and were like, look at these idiots, you know, these right-wing maniacs, they're absolutely mad. You know, they're frothing at the mouth. I mean, they just don't really have, seem to have a sense of humour, some of these people. Well, I think it's true. I think it is a problem on the left as well, this lack of sense of humour. People are so concerned with causing offence. You know, I went to a uh, comedy night just before the second lockdown um, and it was in North London. So you can imagine uh, the type of politics that most (laughs) of the people there had. But the problem was, is so much of the humour just wasn't funny because they were so terrified of saying anything that could be construed as being offensive. Mm. There was one guy who was about to make a joke about uh, someone being uh, fat or himself being fat, but he stopped himself. Because uh, the crowd were looking rather, rather shocked. Yes. So it's um, it's quite, it's quite amazing how much comedy has been censored. You know, we had Jimmy Mulville, who's the producer of um, Have I Got News for You. I think he came out this week to say uh, that the BBC and Channel Four are deliberately censoring their comedy output because they're so terrified of causing offence. And this is what's happening to uh, comedy, and that's why you have the rise yeah. of sort of alternative comedy shows like the free speech comedy. Right. Well, this is the thing, because Radio 1 have done what... And everybody else was like, why is everybody making a fuss? Well, the reason people made a fuss was because Radio 1 actually issued a statement and a tweet in which they declared that this was what they were doing. Now, if they hadn't done that uh, and they had just done it, as opposed to you know telling everyone they were going to do it, pre- people might not have even noticed. I mean, I don't listen to Radio 1, so I wouldn't know if they'd changed the lyrics of Fairytale in New York. But they told everybody they were going to do it as if that was more important than what they were actually doing. Because it is more important to tell people, isn't it? Do you remember Ben and Jerry's telling everybody that they didn't back Pretty Patel? You know, they're an ice cream company. They've now got a tweet out. Only They haven't learned their lesson. Today, uh, I read a tweet on their account, which was talking all about, you know, the racial injustice uh, of climate change and how basically, you know, um, people of colour are somehow affected badly by climate change more than they pollute the world. And it's like you're making ice cream. What are you doing? Oh, yeah. After the death of George Floyd, they were putting out graphics, tweets every day, all day about how we need to dismantle white supremacy, how we need to check our white privilege. And this is coming from a company that isn't exactly squeaky clean itself, I've heard. No. I think it has some uh, some rather uh, 
uh, well, it's owned. Well, it's owned by you. It's owned by you. It's owned by Unilever now, which is known to be yeah. uh, a very uh, massive multinational globalist organisation, which, amongst other things, sells skin whitening cream to people in the subcontinent of India. Um, and also, Ben, ben and Jerry's has come out now and made a statement that they're going to suddenly start paying decent money to cocoa farmers who they've been ripping off for years and paying poverty wages to. So, you know, they should probably check their own record before they start telling us to uh, dismantle our white privilege, whatever that means. But um, I think also going back to the fact that the BBC put this out as a news story, this seems to be something that our state broadcaster seems to be doing quite a lot whenever there's this kind of story, Mm. creating a furore in order to then, I guess, create more publicity for themselves, um, which is kind of strange coming from a publicly owned state broadcaster. You know, you might expect it from a privately owned outlet. um, but this sort of, you know, they ban the version of the song and then they report it as a new story on their own uh, on their own platform. It's, a, it's quite an odd behaviour. And I don't think it's what most of the British public think uh, our state broadcaster that, let's remember, we all pay for should be doing. Well, exactly right. And in, in particular, at the moment, they've got this new director general, Tim Davey, who people thought was going to be a breath of fresh air because he actually reversed the, the ban on Land of Hope and Glory. And they did actually end up performing it and singing it, uh, even though they sort of made a bit of a hash of Jerusalem with some new lyrics. You know, I think it was this obsession with people on the left where they want to change everything, you know, because there's a reason why... Lyrics are written in a particular way. It's a bit like looking at Guernica and saying, you know, well, Picasso uh, painted that in a terrible time. And what we should do uh, is kind of take a paintbrush and change the bits that maybe look a bit nightmarish and a bit violent uh, and change the whole piece of art because it offends someone. Well, it's strategic, isn't it? If they ban the words we can use, then they will, by extension, start banning what we are thinking. Mm. And I think a lot of this censorship... um, is most disturbing when it leads to this self-censorship that we see uh, throughout our our institutions, throughout businesses, throughout a society, that people feel like they can't actually put forward their views, often very mainstream views, for fear of then being cancelled or for fear of being, you know, losing a job, losing a position, losing social status or whatever you might see. But mm. I think this speaks, this whole story, you know, you might think it's just a silly story, it's just one song, but it does speak to this broader broader picture of free speech and where we stand in this country with it you know you've got in scotland the minister of justice seeking to bring in one of the most draconian laws hate expanding hate crime laws to include what we say at the dinner table with our family and you have the law commission in this country in england and wales trying to well proposing bans on offensive cartoons so the state of freedom of speech in this country is not just a you know a left-right issue it's something that everyone should be Mm. worried about because it's 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 deeply concerning. It really is. And I mean, if you only got to look at what's going on in the university sector, um, in the way that everyone is being told. And funnily enough, I was talking to Neil Oliver about Scotland the other day, and he was saying that in Scotland now, because the SNP is more or less a one-party state running Scotland, you know, all of the public sector, uh, a lot of the academia, an awful lot of the kind of the... Uh, what you might call the lesser areas like local councils are all so enthralled to the SNP that they don't talk about anything other than that particular SNP independence agenda because if you're an academic in Scotland you really don't uh, get any any work effectively if you disagree with the government. Well I mean that's really terrifying yeah yeah I don't know too much about what's going on in Scotland but these hate crime laws are chilling Mm. and the way that we have this sort of one-party state Um, telling people how they should behave, what they're allowed to say. And obviously they've got their hands on a lot of the funding as well. So 
they're going to put their money where where, where they want it so and also censoring other people mm. so it's really quite shocking what's going on north of the border mm. and i think more and more attention needs to be brought to it because freedom of speech is really under attack mm. um in and, Scotland and, similar, and, in and, and also here yeah because i think it's uh, basu the uh, the metropolitan police guy has come out and said something similar not to say that he wants hamza yusuf's scottish hate crime law to be brought in but certainly he's made noises to that effect and they've also said that they want to bring in this ridiculous um, limitation on people talking about COVID in certain ways, that they don't think it's right that people should be, you know, scrutinising or being sceptical about vaccines. Well, I'm sorry. You know, you don't get to say what is uh, acceptable to speak about if you're the police force in this country. That's not your job. Well, exactly. And it's not just it's not just the police. It's also the Labour Party who wants to censor anti-vax messaging. You've also got the Royal Society, I think, as well, who are saying, that um, we should stop people from spreading misinformation. But the problem is, is yes, it may be misinformation in this case, but, you know, at another moment, it might be censoring things that then become true. And it's sort of stopping any scientific inquiry um, and making us, you know, all com- conform to one one point of view. Mm. And I think that people really need to start pushing back at this, even if it's not politically correct. Yeah. So I think that's the problem. You have every institution in this country, part of the liberal establishment, all agreeing and that is really dangerous for well for pluralism and for as you said freedom of speech it's kind of what i call project-based politics you know and i wonder if it all started in brussels and in europe where for example if you're not part of the european project you're some kind of ghastly horrible selfish individual who doesn't want to share in the general good you know and i wonder if that's where it began because we seem to have adopted that sort of uh, situation here when you got all the rows that we used to have with ramonas and brexiteers and all of that you know basically brexiteers pay as people who were narrow-minded isolationists you know little englanders people who couldn't understand the wider good and it's just completely wrong oh yeah we definitely have this in terms of the the lockdown measures it seems to be the sort of brexit argument playing out once again before our eyes um you've got the sort of nice people being pro lockdown or as they perceive themselves to be and the lockdown skeptics being the evil types who don't care about people's lives and things shouldn't be so polarised in that respect. We should be able to have a, uh, well, a genuine debate, discussion over something like this. And it shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be so polarised and have people, you know, going at each other's necks over this. Yeah. But that's the state of our country, isn't it? And that's the state of our media at the moment. It is. But of course, interestingly, when you go into some areas of kind of uh, lefty madness and the trans debate and you get people like J.K. Rowling, who's previously been a great champion of the left, suddenly getting vilified and more or less told that she's a ghastly individual because she has a particular view uh, and other people don't. And similarly, uh, Suzanne Moore, uh, who's now left, I think, her job um, at The Guardian because of all of the hate that she's had. Yeah, I know that was quite extraordinary. Suzanne Moore stepped outside of the sort of uh, the the box of what you're allowed to say at The Guardian and she had to leave. Right. And I'll be very interested to see what she has to say um, in the coming months about what happened there. But, you know, you've got so many things, you know, I've lost track of the number of terms we're now used to describe women besides women, you know, women with a cervix, people who bleed, people with cervix, whatever. All these terms, you had the BBC Radio 4 making the editorial decisions to use the term Fisher people instead of fishermen. <laughs> that was a great you know, one. That was, I've forgotten about that. That was this week, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's madness. And I don't know who they're trying to appeal to. The BBC have a big problem, I guess. They're trying to appeal to a woke younger generation. Meanwhile, that woke younger generation are creating their own content. They're watching YouTube. Yeah. They're watching 
Snapchat and Instagram, they're not listening to BBC Radio 1 any longer. So I would say that the BBC should focus on what it does best and leave it at that and not try to social engineer mm. and tell people what they should and should not be watching. You know, right. the BBC seems adamant on treating us like children, acting like it has the moral authority for one reason or another to mm. tell the public what they can and can't listen to. And I find that to be more offensive than any lyrics from fairy tale well, exactly. of New York. Exactly. But also what they're doing is they're apologising and banning something uh, before anybody's actually complained about it, which is clearly what they've done in this case with the Pogues, because nobody's told them not to play it. They're, apparently they're playing it on radio too. So what does that tell you? Does that mean that the older generation are actually more capable of being offended and not bothered about it? It's not going to ruin their day. The only thing I can say, uh, Emily, is that I've got some hope for the new generation because my two teenage sons are pretty um, irreverent and rather enjoy making fun of people, rather enjoy comedy, which is quite brutal. And I don't know whether that's just because they're related to me, but I'm hoping that they represent, you know, the new teenage generation coming behind you. You know, I hope so. I think my generation and maybe a few years younger than me are probably the worst. <laughs> Everything is deep problematic. And you yeah, start where, did having it, where did it all go wrong for you? I mean, how come you're sensible? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'll put that to my, my parenting, I guess. Or just by innate sense of being, you know, I'm very sensible. You yeah. know, look at things in the big picture. But it's true that people my age have the most extraordinary conversations um, about what's problematic, about what you can and can't say. Any kind of debate that could be vaguely controversial is shut down. You know, someone I follow on uh, Instagram recently was having a having a sincere debate about whether fake tan was the same as blackface and whether she should stop using fake tan because it might be deemed offensive to any of the uh, black followers. Dear so this God. is the kind of conversation that are uh, that people my age are having on social media rather than, let's say, talking about how we're going to get out of this COVID crisis yeah, yeah. and uh, get and whether, back and whether, into work. And whether you're going to get arrested for saying the wrong thing to somebody in the street. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just quite extraordinary the kind of uh, the lengths people go to to virtue signal on matters that really are just so minor. And I'm not exactly sure who they think they're trying to uh, defend. And I'm not sure who all these people are who are offended by the lyrics that we're talking about today. It's such a small minority, but I think the BBC is just trying to virtue signal and perhaps they're just trying to bring more traffic to their... uh, to the BBC Radio 1. Perhaps it's not getting as much listeners as it used yeah. to be. The trouble is now I don't know whether I want uh, Fairy Tale of New York to be number one or not, you know, because yesterday morning I did, but now I'm not so sure. Because as somebody <laughs> pointed out yesterday, if they're that keen uh, on espousing, you know, greatness and goodness and virtue, the Pogues really ought to give all of the money that they've made off this terrible, ghastly, bigoted song of theirs and give it to some charity of my choice, shouldn't they? Oh, but of course they will never do that, will they? No. <laughs> They'd rather think... block you and, and seem virtuous. But I think you're right. I think this is going to be counterproductive. Is uh, Has it become number one yet? Uh, well, not yet, but uh, it may be a Christmas <laughs> wish too far. Emily, thank you very much indeed. Emily Carver, political commentator and very sensible member uh, of what can only be described as the millennial generation because it's all gone a bit wrong for the rest of them, hasn't it? You know, they're all offended by this, offended by that, offended by the other. I mean, what you can be offended by about a Christmas song, for heaven's sake? It's bad news for all sorts of other Christmas songs, I would suggest. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday, it's 12.48, and it's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards.
almost full compliance. Almost. Not quite. Yeah, I told them I was going to take this month's salary. Yeah. Um, if, if well, they didn't they're starting comply. to get the message. They are starting to get the message. Uh, yeah, welcome. Nice really to little. see you. Nice to see you too. I see you're wearing some uh, uh, neck gear. Well, yes. Uh, as I said, as I pointed out last week, it's uh, freezing in here. It is cold. It's like uh, one of those lorries that uh, you know drive <laughs> sausages around the country. It's like sausages. One... <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's I'll like, take it's your like word one... for it. Well, like those ones in Goodfellas where they hang people up in the back of them. Yes. That one. <laughs> great film. By yeah, it the is way. a very good great film. Great film. It is good. Um, anyway, good afternoon. Thank you. And welcome yes. to the Perry Awards. Here we are. This is where we look back over the past week of the so-called Independent Republic of My Grandma on yes. Radio and choose their favourite moments. And as it's tradition, Mike, the first Perry goes to you. Thank you. And it's the classic wrong namer of the week. Uh, let's talk to Pete in Hounslow. Hi, Pete. Pete, it's not Pete, it's Ian. Oh, it's Ian. Hello. Sorry, it says Pete here in front yeah. of me. I don't know how that happened. How are you? <laughs> how I know you how it Pete happened. From Ian? That's <laughs> I, amazing. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. It's not the sort of thing you miss here, is it? Pete and Ian don't sound the same. They don't, no. I think, you know what it is? Sometimes people get things wrong. Yes. I'm not going to say who. See, I'm not here it to point happen. the finger. Right. But people get things wrong uh, from other shows, right? Yes. And then they just don't bother correcting them. Right. So, well, I, you see, I you know. uh, thought uh, that James had called me Gavin earlier. I think he did. It turns out he didn't call me that. Well, he says Sounded that. like it. Uh, we thought in the control room, we were like, oh, Gavin. Yeah. We were like, oh, like entry to the Perry has been I know. Oh, well. It wasn't. Anyway, anyway, good to hear from James. Yeah, good to hear from everyone, really. Thank yes. you so much for calling the show this week. Man, wait, record figures again. I know. This week. It's, it's ridiculous. It? Keep so doing it. Thank you all for listening and watching. Now, over to our newsreader, Jenny Barsby. She makes it to this week's list for the recovery of the week. The weather turning dry in the north through the morning, but blustery rain for the rest. The west, I... <laughs> I'll start again, shall I? Right, turning dry in the north through the morning, <laughs> blustery rain for the west, and dry in the south with sunny spells. Very good. She did that very well. That's a lot of words for the weather, isn't it? It is a lot of words, wow. words for the weather, Wow, I'm not surprised yeah. that she uh, had a little problem with that. I know. But listen, she's only she's human. She's top pro. She's only human. Yes. You know, she almost never makes mistakes. So, no, you know, hardly ever. It's good to yes. sometimes. There are other people in this room that make mistakes. There are, yeah. Uh, by that, I mean me, obviously. We, we all make mistakes. It's how we learn, you know. It's how we learn, you can't yeah. Make, you can't just get through life without making mistakes. Yes. And also, like, this Taking little risks. segment would not understand. No. Would not understand. Would not exist. What is wrong? It there wouldn't. you go. Perfect example. Go anyway, on. Dame Esther Ranson, yeah. uh, she joined us earlier this week to talk about the impact of lockdown on the elderly. And bless her, she was the first victim of this week's James Larbin Perry Award for Technical Incompetence. That's true. If you can show that you've had a negative test yesterday or something, uh, you ought to be able to be allowed in, right? I think we may have lost Dame Esther. Are you there? <laughs> we'll try and get Dame Esther back because uh, I think we just dropped the line. Yeah, so Matt Hancock's basically promising uh, that if you want to go and see uh, your elderly relative, you must have a, a test which is negative. And that would seem to be the way forward, Esther. Uh-uh. <laughs> no? <laughs> No, I thought she was there. She's definitely not there. Uh, and <laughs> she, she claimed there. she was in a forest, strangely. Yes. Do you remember? Yes, I, I do remember that. I don't know yes. which forest she was in. It was Forest of Dean? Probably. Sherwood Forest? Epping Forest. Epping, yeah. Uh, Could the be new any forest. Number. The new forest. All the yeah. forests. Yeah. I, I don't know. Nottingham but... Forest. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Conservative MP Andrew Rosendale yes. was also a victim of technical incompetence earlier in the week. However, mm. that did not happen when he came on the show on Tuesday to talk about zoos. It happened on Wednesday during Prime Minister's questions. Returning to Romford with Andrew Rosendale. Andrew Rosendale. <laughs> 
Press the button, Andrew. Right, thank you. Sorry. Well done, Andrew. Bless him. He's got he some was... great flags, Andrew, hasn't he? He does, yes. Flag of the week, I'd yes. say. Three he flags he had. Three flags. Well done. Tremendous. We like that. Yeah. Um, during that same session of Prime Minister's Questions, Speaker Lindsay Hoyle wins the Perry for the correction of the week. And that, in my view, would be a disaster. If he, if he doesn't think that would be a disaster, then perhaps he could say so now. Could, 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 could I just say it's the Scottish National Party, not the Nationalist Party? Otherwise, the phones will be ringing longer than I'm so sorry. I'm so The national, but non nationalists, I see. Right. I think he was a bit, a bit chippy there, Boris, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Clearly doesn't like being told off. I don't think so. Took him back to his days at uh, boarding school. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be fair, he's a prime minister. Well, he is. So Also, which phone's exactly going to be ringing off the hook? Which Lindsay Hoyle? Them. Well, people are going to ring <laughs> Lindsay Hoyle because somebody <laughs> said something in Parliament. Parliament switchboard. What number do you call? <laughs> eh? Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker. I don't know. <laughs> you put him on the speaker phone. <laughs> Very good, very Thank good you. joke of the week. It is. Uh, um, another one for you, Mike. It's mm. the mystery sound of the week. Mm. Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike. What was that? I wonder what that was. It sounds as though there was an, uh, um, a, a rogue device. It sounds possibly. as if someone was watching a video during the ad break. Do you think so? And didn't pause it on time. I don't imagine that would be ever something that would happen in this studio. Well... That's you know, why it's the mystery it's sound mystery. of the week, yeah. because we'll never know. We'll have to have another listen to that. Play it back. Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic. Sounds a bit Mike. like Piers Morgan. Sounds a bit like Piers Morgan, I yeah. can't be him. No, I wouldn't have been. Not. I wouldn't have been watching that. No, no, no one watches Piers Morgan. Well, no. I wouldn't say that. Well. <laughs> Don't upset him. No, no, of course Whatever not. Whatever you do. Of course not. Um, listener Philip in Bournemouth mm. uh, wins a perrier for the joke of the week. Great tweet here uh, on the back of that. It's actually a text to 87222 on the back of our news item about uh, all those Apple goods being stolen. With regard, says Philip in Bournemouth, to the theft of those Apple products, are police looking for eyewitnesses? Get it? I like that. Yeah, it, it's, it's... You groaned, though, didn't you? You didn't like it. Yeah, no, I didn't at first, at first, then I thought, no, it's actually effective. It is quite funny. It is, yeah. When you think about it. It's a classic, isn't it? When you write it with the eye as well. Yes, that's the way it has to be done. Yeah, exactly. Um, travel guru Simon Calder joined us earlier in the week and uh, asked a very important question. Congratulations, Mike. You win a perry for the guest of the week. Um, all right, 300-seater plane. Do you mind guessing how many were filled? Well, I'm going to be slightly cheaty here because I know that from uh, friends of mine who were trying to go to Australia, they were flying uh, massive planes to Australia with only 30 people on. So I'm going to say 30. Oh, you're pretty close. You're, you're closest. I, I've, I've tested that on lots of people this morning. Well, you're you should know, Simon, that I'm one of the few people who actually does my research before I go spouting off about stuff on the radio. Ah. OK, well, it's actually 36. Ah. See, I thought that was pretty good, wasn't it? He yeah. sounded more surprised than I would have expected him to. That I know. I got it right. I know. You know, does it's... he think I'm some kind of idiot? I, ge- I, I guess he thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. Of course no, not. No, we I... love him. He loves us. He's great. He yeah. is great. It's he great is our travel you. guru. Exactly. Mm. He's the best one out there. Yeah. To be honest. Mm. Um, now to my favorite category for the uh, the my new my favorite new category I should say is the out of context Richard ties. Good morning to you, uh, Mike, and I'm glad that neither you nor me are in our pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he thinks we're doing here, but we're never in pajamas here at all, right? No. Now. No. I mean, I say that, but I mean, I'm assuming that's the case. I, I don't know. Somebody I'm told me know. the floor was just washed, by the way, which I didn't know when they would have done that. What? What? what the floor? floor, apparently, out in your section has been washed. Right now? Not now, no, but apparently <laughs> since yesterday. Oh, oh, I haven't noticed. It's not being washed. It has been washed. Oh, okay. 
past uh, tense. So I don't know when that would have been done. Probably during the ninth. Oh, I suppose. I yeah, guess, there's nobody yeah. here, is there? No. Well, I can't really overstated it a bit. I think you have overstated it a bit, yeah. He really isn't a communist. He's not even that far left inside of the Democrats, for heaven's sake. No, no, all right, I'll get it. Yeah. There you go. Cheers, Billy. Thank you for your contributions, everyone. Absolutely. And um, thank you for having me. I'm running late, as always. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank goodness I'm the one who tell myself. Well done, off, yes. So you have I will to not do off. it. Uh, but anyway, that's all for the Pair of Awards. There'll be more next week. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.